Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of this brand new podcast, On the Case. I'm Michael DePoe Wilson, your host. I'm also the host of the Etherist series, and I am so excited to have the opportunity to bring this new series to you as well. Now, On the Case is going to be a little different than the Etherist. For one, there will be far less ominous music. But the main thing is, I'll be sitting down with one of the authors of a case report that was published in Anesthesiology News to discuss that case in more detail. We'll get a chance to go behind the scenes with the author to hear about how that case came to be and what was going through our guests' mind when they were in the middle of it, as well as how they decided to write the case report about that experience. And the best part is, unlike the Etherist, you won't have to wait a full year for new episodes. We'll be publishing new episodes each month. Now, I do recommend that you read the case reports as they make an excellent companion to these interviews. You can find a link to the case in the description of the episode. If you want to read other case reports, I would encourage you to visit the website anesthesiologynews.com or check out the print issue that comes out each month. If you have a case report of your own that you would like to submit for publication, just go to anesthesiologynews.com slash case submission and follow the instructions there for how to submit your case report to us. We would love to see what you have. Okay, without further ado, let's get into this episode's case and our very first guest, who, by the way, was gracious enough to step away during a break at the hospital to discuss his case report with us. Now I'd like to introduce our guest and and welcome him to the show. This is Richard Kim, MD and a Master of Science, and he is a Regional Anesthesiology and Acute Pain Medicine Fellow at Stanford University School of Medicine. And uh, welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you for having me, but please call me Ricky. Of course. Ricky, you wrote for us a a case report that we published on anesthesiologynews.com a few months back, actually. And the title of that report was Just in Time for Halloween, Hemolacrea or blood and tears. And it's a fascinating, well-timed uh, case report. Um, and, you know, obviously we thank you for, for sending that to us. It's probably the best timed case report we've ever had for the website. <laughs> um, and I should say, thank you very much for being our very first guest on our new series on the case. We're going to dig into some of the case reports that we publish in the magazine and get more of a behind the scenes look at, at what goes into writing these things. Well, thank you. I just feel so honored and uh, I'm glad that I could share a very unique vignette that I uh, hope uh, never happens to anybody else on Halloween. <laughs> we had the opportunity to publish it close to Halloween and it's got a spooky yeah. sound to it in terms of case reports. When did this case actually happen? It actually happened in October. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, so it was, it was as spooky for you guys as it was for us then, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's great. So yeah, so um, why don't we just start at the beginning then? Um, so could you tell us just a, a brief overview of, of what the case was about? Yeah. You know, as a resident in training at the time, I was on call and there was a lady who came in who had already undergone multiple surgeries to reconstruct her breasts following breast cancer. And unfortunately, some of the tissue expanders uh, that were there were infected and she came to get that cleaned up. So I was thinking going to the case, this is a, otherwise a fairly healthy lady, no major medical issues. And since she's been in the hospital, she's been getting some DVT prophylaxis with heparin, but otherwise no major medications here. 
I discussed the pre-anesthetic plan with the patient and my attending at the time, Chris Painter, who was a co-author of the SCAPE report. And we proceeded with what we anticipated to be a bread and butter vanilla anesthetic. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, and I'm, I'm going to just read real quick something that you have written here in the case report and, and we'll post a link in, uh, in the description of this episode so people can go back and read it if they haven't gotten a chance, a well-written case report, um, by all means. And, and so this, I think jumped out at me as I was going through and reading it before we published and you say that the patient underwent general endotracheal anesthesia with hemodynamic stability throughout the case on emergence bloody tears acutely manifested in the patient's right eye that persisted for a short time after extubation. And we've got some pictures in the, in the report as well. And, um, and then you go on to say that it was, it actually spontaneously resolved. So that's, that's kind of an interesting thing as well. So yeah. could you tell me what you were thinking it went in that moment when you realized what was happening? Well, I think I briefly had my back turned to the patient as I was preparing the Zofran and the Sugamidex to uh, conclude the case. And as soon as I turned around, as the gases were being weaned off, that once the tape was off, there was just frank blood. It didn't look diluted. It didn't look arterial, thank God. It wasn't like pulsating out of the patient's eyes, but those were streaming out. And my first response was, does this happen all the time? I mean, I'm, I'm just a resident in training. Is Surely somebody wiser and older in the department has encountered this. So the first thing I did, like any dutiful resident, was call my attending. And I think my attending was uh, double covering at the time. And I got the call. He said, oh, are you ready to extubate? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I'm not sure really how to say this without freaking you out. But I think you just need to come over and see it yourself. But before, uh, while he was coming over, I um, quickly just snapped a shot in case, uh, I, I don't know what I was thinking at the time. I just wanted to make sure nobody, you know, would say I was crying wolf, that somebody's eyes were suddenly filling up with bloody tears. <laughs> I think most people would have that exact reaction. Um, yeah, so is that the moment when you decided that you were definitely going to write a case report on this particular case? You know, I, I think the first thought I had was, first of all, is this lady bleeding anywhere else? Um, is it just her eyes? Um, did I miss something in her medical record that would suggest that she had DIC? That was she, uh, did she have some fulminating, brewing sepsis that was predisposing her to be more coagulopathic? I just wanted to make sure that you know she was safe, that she was healthy as build, but enough she was and uh once my attending got into the room uh chris painter he took a look and over his mask i looked at his eyes his eyes have doubled uh and maybe we're about to cry bloody tears as well because he wasn't sure what he was looking at so um we made sure that uh the anesthetic was wearing coming off that the surgery was actually concluding and we tried to perform as smooth of an excavation as possible making sure that the blood was all caught um, and fortunately the patient woke up and there wasn't any unusual bleeding anywhere else 
I can just imagine all, all the different thoughts that were racing through your head in that moment. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I imagine, was there anyone in, involved in the case who had any familiarity with that? Yeah, the plastic surgeons that were operating um, around the breasts just saw Chris and I hovering over the patient's eyes once the drapes came down. And they were like, what are you so flustered about? What are you so busy about? And Chris just looked up at the, uh, at the surgeon and said, she's crying blood. <laughs> and I think at the time, the uh, surgeon just took a, stuck, stuck a step back, took a deep breath, looked over and said, huh. And the surgical no. resident at the time uh, had absolutely no idea. And I think the first thought he was, he was thinking, because he was probably on call as well, was, oh, God, this, is this another consult that he has to do for the night? In any case, I, he, he looked a little overwhelmed. But um, I said, look, we're going to excavate this patient. Uh, this, uh, this seems pretty isolated to one eye, strangely. Um, and it's not getting any worse right now, but we don't want it to, uh, and we want it to get better, but uh, we need to evaluate after she is excavated. So we, at that point, proceeded with uh, removing the endotracheal tube, and she woke up uh, unremarkably. After the initial shock and sort of like getting everyone uh, uh, on board with what was happening, yeah. um, you you know you were running through like your options there, and were there, um, you know, when as you were thinking about what to do, were you kind of running through like possible treatment options as you were sort of checking yeah. off? other things that weren't wrong and, and you know what how is that process going in your mind yeah the things i wanted to make sure during emergency and extubation because i have heard during other surgeries that if the blood pressure is too high during emergency and extubation the patients uh may blow an asthmosis or just blow small capillaries uh, here and there that may uh manifest as petechiae, uh, manifest as just some sort of bruise. And certainly wanted to minimize that risk in case this was coming from an actively leaking blood vessel. Um, and once she was safely extubated, uh, I wanted to make sure that once we got into the PACU that she wasn't continuing to bleed, that she had adequate access and that she wasn't uh, bleeding not just from the eyes, but from the nose. And once the breathing tube was out, the mouth as well. And fortunately, none of these things were the case. Once she was more lucid enough to actually talk with us, she actually just stopped bleeding. And Chris and I, along with the surgical resident, we were hovering around her, making sure that her eyes were completely normal. And asking, we were asking her, she had any sort of eye disease that we didn't have in our record, um, making sure that she didn't have any occult hypertension or liver disease that we missed. And she just continued to deny everything. Um, and okay. I think our questions may have made her worried more than anything else. So the outcome of the case, and I think you say this um, in the description on it, in the case report is, is that it, it self-resolved. It, it ended up not being something that you had to, um, to do anything about. Is that right? Yes. Fortunately, we continued to monitor her eyes, make sure that the nurses in the PACU were calm, reassured that things were moving in the right direction. And 
we used a little bit of ceiling to flush out some of the remaining clots that were forming on the lower conjunctiva. Um, afterwards, we just did a quick neuro exam, evaluated her eyes, made sure that she was able to follow um, uh, all of our instructions, uh, made sure she had a normal cranial nerve exam. In the meantime, the surgical resident was calling the ophthalmologist to make sure that uh, they were uh, apprised of the situation. And as I explained to the ophthalmology consult resident what was going on, and had also mentioned that the bleeding had resolved, he uh, sounded also flummoxed, but uh, just said, you know, if she continues to bleed more, that's an issue. Fortunately, she's not. And so we left it at that. We communicated with the patient that um, this was highly, highly unusual. Fortunately, nothing bad is going on. And as far as we could tell, it was going to happen. We reassured her that uh, if she had increased bleeding for whatever reason out of her eye, she should come back to the hospital and we would continue to uh, reassess and work for a long time. When you started looking into it and, and you were looking to write up this case, um, what kind of details were you finding out about how, you know, whether or not this happens frequently or, you know, what, what is kind of the, uh, the, the background, like the literature review of, of this particular type of condition? Yeah. You know, I talked this over with Chris that day and we thought, um, Surely, there has to be no more than one or two reports on hemolacria, if ever, um, especially in the context of surgery out there. Um, and just to make sure that I didn't forget this experience uh, and reflected on it properly, I just uh, kind of wrote down the initial impressions of the case, and this would later blossom into this case report. But as I was doing the literature review, um, I found surprisingly little information. Um, I had to, uh, first of all, figure out the medical term for bloody tears. It turned out to be hemolacria. <laughs> um, and, that, and that, I thought, would maybe open up on PubMed and some other uh, literature databases opportunities to uh, read other articles. But again found very little information on just bloody tears, especially in the context of anesthesia and surgery. The only major body of literature that we saw was for, uh, in the context of ENT surgery, hemolacria being described as a post-operative complication. And for patients that have uncontrolled hypertension that during the course of anesthesia upon emergence, uh, buck too hard on the tube and may, uh, burst of blood vessel. Um, we also tried to explore this in the context of, well, this lady had a nasopharyngeal temperature probe, so could just some rubbing against the mucosa within the nose uh, have increased bleeding uh, around her uh, around her nasolacrimal duct. And we fortunately had uh, a colleague uh, in the ocular plastics division who was able to comment on that particular question and flatly said, no, the turbinates are 
protecting the opening, the nasal opening for the nasal lacrimal duct. So there's no way the probe could have remotely touched that area to cause breathing backwards, which would be highly unusual as well. So um, we, and it was, it was surprising how little there was out there, but I'm, I'm glad that people aren't just crying blood. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's another uh, another interesting um, line. I mean, it's 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 not a very common sentence to write in, a, in even in a case report. In, in this case report, you uh, kind of summarize it, and you say, to the best of our knowledge and literature review, this is the first case report of spontaneous perioperative hemolacrea. Um, which is pretty remarkable to to have come across something that was is so rare, um, you know, and, and for people to experience and even in the literature. I, I wish that nobody has to encounter this. Uh, I, I it just was sort of surreal that this happened in October, and um, I knew I was going to be working on Halloween, and I made sure that everybody's eyes were crystal crystalline clear and uh, <laughs> no major issues around that time. But uh, you know, it's just one of these weird cases that I think uh, I'll never forget. It's a pretty remarkable experience. It's an uh, excellent case report. Um, you know, I was just kind of looking forward um, from all of this. You know, did you take some major lessons with you from this experience that you think will be useful for you in the future? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think thinking broadly, there are so many ways that. Um, complications can happen and sometimes and we're, we're trained to think about mitigating complications preventing adverse outcomes and in this case this was I'm, I'm not sure you can classify this as a complication or an adverse outcome in the traditional senses of those words but it was just something highly unusual that the that was concerning for the patient but I think the most important thing here was communication to make sure that the patient was reassured and knew what had happened, um, and to ensure that there was proper follow-up available should the patient request it. I think then taking a step further into the medical uh, possibilities, there are certain diseases that we routinely screen for that we should uh, always have in the back of our minds, such as um, cardiovascular disease, hepatic uh, diseases that could predispose a patient to coagulopathy, infections, and although probably pretty rare, just uh, any sort of uh, metastatic tumors uh, that could potentially be in anywhere, really, right? So these these are things that uh, are routinely screened for, and not that I'm expecting somebody to have uh, bloody tears because of these, but in the context of what we do as anesthesiologists, which can put a lot of pressure uh, around the head, it could burst the blood vessel. So it's something to just keep in mind. Yeah, I, I, I think that covers it. Um, we'll definitely recommend that everyone go and read the case report. It's actually, it's uh, you know, as far as case reports go, it's 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 pretty short, but it's it's jam-packed with some pretty cool information about, uh, about what you experienced. Um, so thank you very much for coming on the show. And again, thank you for being our very first guest. Well, thank you very much for having me on and best of luck and success. Thank you so much, Ricky, for being our very first guest 
on On the Case. And thank you to all of you for joining us. Now, I'd like to remind you that if you were listening to Ricky explain what went into writing this case report, and you're thinking that you too have a case that you'd like to submit, please consider doing so. You can go to our website at anesthesiologynews.com slash case submission, and you can look up everything you need there to submit your case to us, and, and we'll review that, and we can get back to you about publishing your case as well. Uh, I would also like to let you know as we've announced just recently that we have another new show that's coming out this year along with On the Case. That show is called Ask the Experts, and our very first guest for that show is Dr. William Rosenblatt. He's an anesthesiologist at Yale New Haven, and he is uh, definitely a difficult airway expert. He's the president of Airway on Demand, and he is the creator of the Airway on Demand video series, which we publish on anesthesiologynews.com. And you can check out all of those videos there. We have about 70 that you can check out. Uh, they're really fantastic. And we're going to get to talk to him in a lot more detail about some of those uh, videos and, and some difficult airway issues that come up. Um, so stay tuned for that episode. And the very last thing, if you enjoyed the show today and if you're looking forward to what we have to offer this year with these new series, please subscribe to the channel and rate the show, rate the channel. Um, And most importantly, uh, share us with your colleagues, your friends, maybe your friends' colleagues or colleagues of your friends, really anyone you can think of. We would really appreciate that a lot. And if you haven't yet, definitely check out the last season of The Etherist, which came out in October of last year. Uh, It's all about a looming physician shortage in anesthesiology. It's still a very relevant topic, um, and and there's a lot of good stuff to to dig into there as well. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week. Definitely stay tuned. Goodbye. Anesthesiology News presents On the Case was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Our music comes from Blue Dot Studios. Our editorial director is James Pruden, and the rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Betty Zong, Kristen Janicone, Kwang Yi Chung, and Sophia Lee. On the Case is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, and the McMahon Group.